You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Most modern biologists are really too busy in their laboratories to reflect on the philosophical stance that they take in their work. In fact, they're awfully busy. Their curiosity drives them to their experiments, and the success of the methodology they have encourages them even further to greater curiosity. This is only as it should be. This is really the way of the scientist, to be driven by the curiosity of the unknown, to want to know more about nature. And for this kind of scientist, it's difficult to stop and reflect on the philosophical underpinnings of the discipline. But there are a few biologists who've taken the step of not only reflecting on that philosophy, but actually trying to translate it into real terms, to make of their science a meta-science, to make a metaphysics out of it. Let me give you an example. We've talked about the reductionist approach as a method. We've talked about its value. We've also talked about the use of it epistemologically, that is, as a way of knowing about the living world. And we've also talked about it as an ontological stance, that is, that that's all the world consists of, are these very simple things, these genes, for instance. Now let's take the case of evolution. The theory of evolution, as proposed by Charles Darwin, is really not that antithetical to Christian thought. If you look back at the work of Augustine, for instance, in the fourth century, we find that in the writings of Augustine, in his writing, his critique of Genesis, the literary interpretation of Genesis, he called it, in that writing, he actually mentions that creation exists both in the created things and in certain potencies of creation, which he called seeds of potential. Thomas Aquinas reflected back on this in his treatise on creation in the Summa Theologica. So it was clear that these early church fathers realized that although they didn't have a completely evolutionary stance, they might have had what we'd call a developmental stance in thinking of creation. That is, that creation may have occurred in stages. That certain life species we see around us might have been created in simpler or less developed forms. So, in essence, that's not antithetical. The idea of evolving species antithetical to these early church fathers. And all of the popes since Darwin, including our most recent pope, John Paul, have written that evolution is not antithetical to Catholic thought. In his most recent letter, the pope has in fact stated very clearly this issue, except of course for the fact of the special creation of the human person in the sense of our ensoulment, which I'll come to in a moment. Now given that, what is the issue that I want to raise about neo-Darwinism that I've talked about before? Because some neo-Darwinists, some very prominent neo-Darwinists, have written and said publicly that evolution proves there is no God. Well, how can that be if evolution is not antithetical to Christian thought? Well, here's the logic that neo-Darwinists would use. It goes as follows. First, Darwin proposes the theory of evolution in Origin of Species. He proposes at that time that evolution proceeds by the force called natural selection. And you remember our discussion that when he proposes this, it's a force with nothing upon which to act. So it really is a theory with no real physical force to it in the sense of physics having a physical force and an object upon which it acts. 
Mendel, at the same time, proposes the gene as a unit of inheritance. And as we've seen, the gene of Mendel was first proposed as a mathematical construct. It then became a physical thing associated with the chromosome. It then became, in the hands of Morgan and Sturtevant, a location on the chromosome. And it then became, with the discovery of DNA, a physical thing. That is, DNA is the genetic information and therefore the gene. With the advent of DNA as the gene, the neo-Darwinists can say that the gene itself is this molecule and that changes in the gene, meaning changes in the traits of the organism that contains it, are reflected in changes in this molecule. Now, these changes, the neo-Darwinist argument goes on, are mutations. And mutations are known to arise in a random way in DNA. In other words, the neo-Darwinists would argue that mutations arise by chance. Now, I'm going to come back to the use of that word chance in a little while to see what really is meant. But what they're thinking is, and their use of the word, is chance means randomness. In their argument, randomness means no one is specifying it. There's no intelligence behind it. Randomness means simply that. Now, since mutations occur by random, and since mutations produce the different traits in animals, natural selection, the force of evolution, then works on this pool of genetic alterations, this group of alleles in a population, to allow only those which work best in a given environment to survive. So natural selection works on the gene and the mutations produced by this random selection. So the neo-Darwinists would argue that all of the species we see evolving have occurred because natural selection acted on a group of genes whose differences arose by a random set of events. And therefore, the neo-Darwinists would argue, and here we come to the crux of their argument, therefore the neo-Darwinists would argue there is no need to postulate an intelligent creator in evolution. There is no need to, because all of these things happen by chance. Now the neo-Darwinist goes a step further and says, those who wish to say this, they make the conclusion that therefore evolution proves that God does not exist. Now, let's see what are the fallacies in this argument. Well, the most obvious fallacy is the last one. Okay? There is nothing in the argument that proves anything about the existence of a creator. One could say that simply the suggestion that you don't need to postulate an intelligent creator certainly leaves it open whether one exists or not, but it certainly doesn't prove that no God exists. That's one obvious problem with it. The second problem with their argument is their dependence on the word chance or random events. So, in an Aristotelian or Thomistic sense, chance is included as part of the equation. We can have chance happenings and they are not outside of the realm of nature, and they are not outside of the realm of God. In other words, it could very well be that an intelligent creator can utilize a chance or random so-called event of mutation in the process of an evolving species. There's nothing outside of our concept of the creator or our concept of God that would deny that. 
and in addition, in a Thomistic sense, certainly change that happens due to chance, so-called accidental change, is certainly possible, certainly included within the framework of that philosophy. So the idea of chance somehow being different than intelligence, somehow chance being different than an intentional act, is really not a part of the logic of the system of at least Aristotelian or Thomistic thought, in my opinion. So the neo-Darwinist lack of understanding of that and his overstepping the bounds of science to leap into the meta-science and say that these things suggest God does not exist is really a logical fallacy. Nonetheless, a few neo-Darwinists have done this and made statements such as evolution proves that God did not exist. So part of the problem is that the neo-Darwinist always chooses to cast as the opposition those who feel that scripture should be literally interpreted. And there's a stance that some have that goes that way. As I've said, that's not necessarily the Catholic Church's stance on the issue, but nonetheless some feel that way. But the neo-Darwinists choose to point to the creation scientists as the ones who represent the opposite of what they feel. And in many ways it's true, they are at actual opposite ends of the spectrum. But I find in classes that students who have any kind of Christian faith, or any faith whatsoever, whether it be Islamic or Jewish or any faith, are often challenged by certain scientists to say that you cannot be a scientist and believe in God in the same time because of this sort of argument that science is somehow antithetical to the existence of God. And it's that casting of this in a black and white issue that I think is the real error of the neo-Darwinist logic. So we have that problem, the reductionist approach that leads one to think ontologically that the smallest units, the atoms, are what specify everything there is about us, leads to this sort of idea that since everything occurred by random, then all that we see around us simply occurs by random chance. Now, the second problem, philosophically with this stance, takes us back again to Thomas and to Aristotle, and to Thomas's interpretation of Aristotle. In Aristotelian philosophy, the way to know about something required four pieces of information, so-called causes. There was the formal cause, which addresses the question, what is it? There was the material cause, which addresses the question, of what is it made? There was the efficient cause, which addresses the question, who made this thing? And finally, there was the final cause, which addresses the question, for what was this made? For what purpose was this made? And in Aristotelian philosophy, all four are necessary. In fact, the final two causes, the last two, efficient and final cause, are more important in essence than the first two. Now, David Hume, the philosopher in England at the end of the 18th century, knew of these four causes. And David Hume's statement was that science that modern science, which was developing at the time, meaning basically physics, should address only the formal cause and the material cause of a thing and not bother with the efficient cause and the final cause. In other words, Hume said one must focus only on the material aspects, be an empiricist, do experiments only on the material aspects, the formal cause, what a thing is, and the material cause of what it's made. And so by accepting that, and it was very productive for physics to accept that in the time of Newton's approach to observing the world, it deleted from the equation the efficient cause and most importantly the final cause. 
Now, that's fine for physics because an object moving in space or a ball rolling along a tabletop or a lever or any of the objects and phenomenon with which physics deals don't really need to have these two causes as part of them. They are in and of themselves understandable. But if we look at the world around us, the living world, we look at biological systems, it becomes a sort of logical inconsistency for a biologist to refuse to acknowledge causality of the last two, that is, efficient and final cause. Especially final cause, which is also called teleology. To argue that biological entities have no teleology, that is, have no purpose, becomes illogical. So when a student comes to a biologist and asks the question, why do the chromosomes behave that way during mitosis? Which would be a valid question for a student to ask. The answer that's given by the biologist is, so that the two daughter cells of mitosis have exactly the same genetic information as the parent cell. That's why the chromosomes behave that way. That's the answer we give. Well, that's a teleological answer. It says that the chromosomes are behaving that way for a purpose. There is a purpose to their behavior. Well, if everything is behaving at random, why should the chromosomes have a purpose? Why should there be a purpose? So it becomes an illogical answer. And in fact, if you point to the biologist who says that and says, you've just given a teleological explanation for chromosome behavior, he or she will say, oh, no, 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 I don't deal in teleology. Because the word teleology is somehow anathema to science. We don't think in terms of causes because Hume said, and we've accepted this philosophical stance, we shouldn't deal in terms of these causes. Now, what do we see in nature? When we actually look, what do we see that has some kind of teleological explanation? Well, Francisco Ayala from UC Irvine, the great evolutionary biologist and philosopher of science, has broken the kinds of teleology we see in biology into three kinds. He says there are three kinds of teleological explanations in biological systems. First, there are self-regulating systems. We see very many examples of enzyme systems which regulate their behavior in the cell by the conditions of the cell. So they're self-regulating. Larger systems than that, the way we regulate our body temperature, for instance, in response to the environment, heating up the surface when it's cold, cooling down when it's warm. These are self-regulating systems. The second kind of system he sees are systems that appear to be designed for a purpose. The human hand, for instance has a design function to it that allows us to grasp. We see that in many other living systems, things that appear to be designed for a purpose, just by their design. And then finally, he says, a teleological explanation should be given to intentional actions. When we see an animal intentionally doing something, a bird building a nest, a dog or a coyote in the desert here chasing down a rabbit. There is a purpose behind the action. There's an intentionality behind it. And of course, in human intentions, it's even a higher level of intentionality. At least we think it is because we introspect about our intentions and project into the future in many ways that we don't think the lesser life forms do on this planet. Now, some philosophers have suggested that teleology in this case ought to be replaced by another word. They've suggested the word teleonomy to replace teleology. Now, it's the same meaning. It means that there's a purpose to the things, but they don't wish it to be confused with the philosophical term teleology. Now, why would that be? I've thought about that. Why would it be important to reject the word teleology? Well, if I'm talking about why a cell divides, 
and I say that chromosomes behave in a certain way, and I'm giving a teleological explanation, I'm saying that there's a cause, there's a purpose, there's a final purpose to the act. It seems to me that if I admit the reason, the word teleology, into my thinking, then I can very easily get to the final cause of everything. I can get to Thomas's final cause. I can get to where St. Thomas took us in his ways of proving God, in his idea of God as the uncaused cause, the final cause of all things. I mean, it's a simple set of logical deductions, isn't it? Back from why this cell divides, to why the cell's there in the first place, to why the person's there in the first place. So I suspect that the rejection of the word teleology in favor of this word teleonomy, which by the way I think means the same thing here, really is an attempt to try to stave off the logical progression that that would give you right back to Thomas's final cause. Thomas's uncaused cause, his unmoved mover. So I suspect that that's the traces of the Humean kind of imperative against considering a creator by removing those two causes and focusing only on the physical world and the material world. My opinion is that's the last vestige of that that refuses to accept any kind of teleological explanation for what we see in biology. And nevertheless, our logic tells us that there is order, there is purpose. It's in fact why I do the experiments in the first place, because there is order and purpose to be discerned. Now, if the problem of teleology weren't enough for science to contend with in the modern age, what about the problem of the human soul? Well, in the case of science, in the case of biology, of course, we exist in the Cartesian framework. Descartes said, mind and body are separate. He said, body is that which is out there, mind is that which is inside. And he instituted this duality that we've inherited, a duality between mind and body. Now, Descartes, by the way, did not reject God, and he did not reject soul or spirit. Of course, Descartes said, I think my mind works, Therefore, I am, my body exists, in his dual presentation of this. But the second statement he made, which most modern commenters and philosophers don't remember, is that he then said, in his next paragraph of his meditations was, I am, therefore God exists. So he came to the conclusion in his thoughts that God, of course, exists. Descartes was not about proving that God did not exist. But this mind-body duality that then descends from Descartes to Hume, and to Locke and the other 18th century philosophers allowed them to say, let's examine the material world, the body part of the mind-body duality, and leave the mind part to the philosophers, to the metaphysicians, to the theologians. So science will inherit then the ability only to look at the material. The soul, that is what we as Christians believe in as soul, is part of that immaterial world, that spiritual world. So by science taking that and setting it aside and saying it is not our domain, we now inherit a way of looking only at the material world, which again has been immensely successful. But now we have scientists who are about looking at the material part of us that we associate with mind, that is our brain. So neurobiologists are discovering great things about how the brain works what chemicals are involved, how the neurons connect. An immense amount of information is being accumulated in wonderful ways about the brain. But when you ask a neurobiologist, well, where's the soul? 
Well, of course, that's not part of the experiment because the experiments are designed to look only at the body part. Even though it's the brain, it's really the body part of the brain. In this Cartesian approach, the mind is something separate. Now, the problem arises when neurobiologists will say, certain neurobiologists, not all, certain will say, well, there is no soul. It's just all the chemicals in the brain that make you work. It's the reactions. It's the neural connections. It's all those physical things that you think is consciousness, that you think is thought, that you think is mind, that it's just the interconnections of neurons and the interplay of neurochemicals that we're talking about. Is that really a fair conclusion? To say there is no soul because all I'm measuring is the physical, when in the beginning, in the Cartesian framework, I've decided to only look at one half of the equation. If I only choose to look at the material, then I have no way of saying whether a soul exists or not, do I? I have no way of saying it because it's not part of what I'm observing. So to reject the existence of the soul because you believe that everything can be proved merely by looking at the chemicals is to engage in a form of religion that we call scientism. That is a belief that science, in and of its own domain, can explain everything that there is to explain, and that anything outside of science is not worth considering. It's taking the Cartesian dualism and splitting off the body part of mind-body and expanding it to fill the universe, and saying, therefore, nothing else exists. That's taking science and making of it scientism. Now, this question of the human soul is an interesting one for biologists. I was at a recent meeting this past summer at Notre Dame at the Jacques Maritain Institute when this issue was discussed. And one of the biological phenomenon that came up in this issue was the idea of twinning. So we know that twins arise in humans every once in a while. There will be identical twins. And we even know biologically that identical twins have resulted when a fertilized egg is dividing and splits into two separate eggs and each of them develops into an individual. So what we have, in fact, is a natural cloning experiment. We have two individuals who are genetically identical. They derived from the same fertilized egg. Everything about them is genetically identical. So the question was raised at this meeting, well, what about the soul? When did the soul come into this individual? If the soul entered before the twinning, did the soul divide? And are we looking at a person with one soul that divided into two? Is it now less? A lot of philosophical questions were raised about this in the discussion. Later that evening, in a kind of an off-the-cuff discussion out in the quad, one of the philosophers asked me, he said, he was addressing the following question, how can you as a scientist be here at this philosophical meeting, allowing your modern 20th century science to be juxtaposed to this basically medieval philosophy of Thomas. And I was explaining why I was there in terms of what attracted me and the like. And finally, he asked me this question. Well, let's take this twinning issue. If I was to ask you, which should stand? Should the twinning issue disprove Thomas's ideas of the soul? Or should Thomas take precedence over the twinning issue? Which would you let stand? And I thought about that and I answered, I would let Thomas stand. And in explaining to him why I said that, I understood it as follows. The philosophical systems we're talking about have been reflected on for centuries. My science, molecular biology, is not even as old as I am. It's less than 50 years old. The philosophical issues we're talking about are not really 
the kinds of things that we're doing in the laboratory. But in the laboratory, I know that my science is subject to change depending on next week's experiments. The way science operates is by trying to falsify existing hypotheses. So let me take the twinning issue as an example. What I already know from experiments that other people have done about eggs in nature that are to be fertilized is that not all parts of an egg are equal. Some eggs in some species have compartments set aside such that that part of the egg will become some specialized cell later on. What if it should turn out that an egg in a human that's destined to become a twin already exists in some kind of dual nature physically before it's even fertilized? What if it should be that when it's fertilized it already is destined to be a twin and that that does not happen as a later event? If I should discover that biologically, then the issue of whether this is in disagreement with Thomas's stance on the soul becomes a moot point because now my concept of what the egg is has changed and the nature of my science is so malleable and so changing because it's so young and because its very nature is to try to falsify its results that it would be ridiculous for me to take a stand on an issue as grave as the nature of the soul vis-a-vis -vis Thomas's interpretation and judge that in the light of the science that I do. I say that the ideas of the soul cannot be incorporated into modern biology as long as modern biology does not incorporate the idea of spiritual or the spirit or the mind part of mind-body into its experimental protocol. Now another issue that's of critical importance for biology comes from the nature of biology itself. Remember at the very beginning of this series I said that biology is the study of life. So the question is, what is life? What do we mean by that? Well I gave you some characteristics of life to begin with about growth and metabolism and adaptation and inheritance. But what really is life? Schrodinger, the famous quantum physicist who developed the wave equation, who conceived of a way to calculate at the quantum level, wrote the book, What is Life?, that attracted Max Delbruck's attention early on in the development of molecular biology. And Schrodinger himself raised a paradox that comes out of quantum mechanics, the famous paradox of Schrodinger's cat. Now, in this thought experiment that Schrodinger did, which was to demonstrate a particular paradox of the quantum uncertainty of the world, he imagined that in a box that was closed would be a cat. Schrodinger's cat. And in this box would also be a vial of poison, let's say cyanide. And the poison would be hooked to a device that responded to radioactive decay such that when an atom radioactively decayed, the flask would break and the cat would be exposed to the poison. Now, radioactive decay is a quantum event, meaning that you cannot predict for a single atom when decay will occur. In the wave equation of Schrodinger, there is an uncertainty built in that prevents your prediction of that. So when the box is closed and no one is watching what's going on, there is no observer present in this thought experiment, you can argue that the cat is neither dead nor alive. That it's only when you open the box and an observer looks at the phenomenon, this is the influence of the observer on the experiment, Schrodinger argued only when you open the box would the wave equation collapse and the cat would be then either alive or dead, depending on what had happened to the decay. But as long as the box is unobserved, 
then it is in a nebulous state of either not decaying or decaying, and the cat is either not dead or dead. Now, it's a fantastic paradox to think about, but the way I think about that cat is as follows. The real problem for the biologist starts after the box is opened. Because the real problem for the biologist is the cat is in either state A, alive, or state B, dead. Now, I challenge the biologist, what's the difference between state A and state B? What's the difference between the dead cat and the live cat? A good biologist would tell you that the cat in state B that's dead has been exposed to cyanide and we'll assume it's a male, his mitochondria are now inactivated because the cyanide has poisoned the critical enzyme cytochrome oxidase and the mitochondria can no longer produce energy so the cat is dead. Okay, so I challenged that biochemist or that molecular biologist. Let's take a fresh collection of mitochondria and put them back into the cat. Do we have a live cat? No. Let's take all the parts to the cat and assemble them together and see if we have a live cat. Do we have a live cat? No. We can't do that. So I again ask, what's the difference between the cat dead and the cat alive? Well, in our reductionist approach, if we believe that the cat is really only made up of its genes and the genes specify the proteins and that's all there is, we should be able to assemble them back into some kind of live cat. Just replace the bad parts with the good ones and we've got our cat again. But we know that won't work. So what we mean by life must be something more than just the sum of its parts. Now, in the 19th century, there was an idea called vitalism that was around. And I'm not proposing that we go back to vitalism. In vitalism, the philosophers who espoused that thought that life was due to some force called the elan vital, which was riding over the living system and in some kind of mysterious way causing life. Okay, I don't think that's a tenable hypothesis. Nobody has measured such a force, at least not as a physical phenomenon. And we really can't talk about it in any viable and productive way. Another approach to the idea is to talk about what is called emergent properties of the system. And that approach says that the system, meaning the cat, is more than the sum of its parts. That somehow the individual components that make up the cat working together as a system make the live cat. This idea of emergent properties is a very popular one with people who are trying to understand origin of life issues sort of at the frontier of biology, people at the Santa Fe Institute like Stuart Kaufman. But the idea of emergent properties is not accepted by everyone. Certainly the very strict neo-Darwinian who is a reductionist still believes in his heart of hearts that everything about that cat is simply the genes. Okay. So it isn't an idea that's accepted widely, but it is a promising road for consideration. Now, emergent properties actually has its dangers also. If the idea of emergent properties comes from this very, we'll call it, 19th century philosophical approach that is looking only at the material, then it is in danger itself of eventually becoming reductionist. Without the other causes, without the efficient cause and the final cause of Thomas, it is difficult to structure your philosophy such that emergent properties are not just seen as the properties of the individual things working in concert. So there is kind of a reductionist difficulty that's still left, even though we're talking about a systems approach to the information. But overall, the idea of looking at it as a system, looking at it as a complex interacting system, 
that produces the phenomenon that we call life is now one that begins to lead us away from the very reductionist, deterministic stance of the 19th century physicists. It gives biology a way out. It gives biology a way that leads away from that philosophical trap. Does it permit teleological explanations back in? I think so. I think emergent properties can eventually be seen to have a purpose. That there would be a reason for things interacting to produce a certain effect. I think it's a promising avenue that may be actually the rescue of biology. Now, I've raised several issues in which biology seems to be at loggerheads with our Christian way of thinking. What if our biology is actually consistent with our Christian way of thinking? What does that do for us? I mean, for instance, in physics, we have the idea in cosmology of the Big Bang hypothesis. Many feel that saying Big Bang is equivalent to saying in the beginning, God created everything, that God said, let there be light. That is the Big Bang. It seems to be consonant with the first verse of Genesis. So what if our biology somehow supported scripture? Is that a good thing? Let me give you an example. In each of our cells as humans, we have these little organelles I've referred to several times as mitochondria. I told you that they generate energy for our cells and for our bodies. Now, where do we get our mitochondria from? It turns out that our mitochondria have a DNA of their own. They have a separate small genome that specifies certain proteins that are needed by the mitochondria. As it turns out, our mitochondria come exclusively from our mothers. It's called maternal inheritance. When the sperm and the egg fuse, the sperm doesn't deliver any mitochondria to the egg. It only delivers its nucleus. And all the mitochondria that new individual will have derive from that egg and therefore from the mother. It's called maternal inheritance. Now, some investigators got curious. With the advent of recombinant DNA technology and gene sequencing, they said, what does the DNA of mitochondria look like? And if I go all around the world and take samples of tissue from everybody of different ethnic groups everywhere in the world, how many different kinds of mitochondrial DNA would I find? These were people who were interested in exploring the anthropological origins of modern humans. When they did the experiment, they found that when they related all of these DNAs in a kind of cladistic tree, it led to an interesting conclusion. It led to the conclusion that all existing humans everywhere on the planet descended from one woman. Let me say it again. The experiments suggest that all existing humans everywhere on the planet descended from one woman. Experimenters called it the Eve hypothesis. Now that's very interesting. You can do the same experiment with men because males, male humans, have a unique chromosome. We have a Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes. Males have an X and a Y. So in that sense, you could effectively trace back in the same way the Y chromosome because I got my Y chromosome from my father. He got his from his father, etc. So experimenters did the same experiment. They took Y chromosome material from humans all around the world and got the same kind of answer, that all currently existing humans have a Y chromosome descended essentially from one ancestral male person. So does this mean that molecular biologists have determined that there was an Adam and there was an Eve? Does this mean that molecular biology supports Genesis? 
that there was an Adam and Eve, only two original persons? And should we now grasp onto that as proof of Scripture? An interesting question. I say no. I say that the nature of science is such that it's ever-changing. That's our purpose as scientists, is to try to constantly disprove the hypothesis we've created. In fact, Thomas Kuhn has argued that that's the way science progresses, by new paradigms being raised and new hypotheses being raised up to challenge existing ones. And Karl Popper has added to that that the way that operates is by falsifiability. So it may be that this entire experiment with Eve and Adam and these DNAs would be falsified when more data is gathered. So wouldn't it be a tragedy if we pinned our scriptural understanding for proof on some biology? In fact, Paul tells us that faith is not the evidence of things seen, but rather the evidence of things unseen. So it seems to me that faith is what we need in the scriptures, not scientific proof. In fact, perhaps that was the one thing that Thomas Aquinas may have done wrong without knowing it, was tying theology to the physical world, to his concept of how the cosmos looked. Because as soon as Copernicus came along and shattered the Ptolemaic system, suddenly the theological underpinnings of people were shaken. So I don't see any need to tie our scriptural understanding to our scientific understanding, even if, even if that scientific understanding seems to support the scripture. Now, what is it about scripture that we need to consider in terms of biology? Well, a good friend of mine who's a scientist at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and also a very deep scriptural scholar, has said to me something very important. He told me once that I can have on my desk, which I do, I can have on my desk my books of molecular biology and my Bible. And he argues that the molecular biology books and the Bible are not inconsistent with each other. That the molecular biology books are descriptions of what we would call the hand of God, the work of God's hand. And that the scripture represented in our Bible represents the mind of God, what God is thinking about for us. And that the two are not inconsistent at all. In fact, there's a quote from Galileo that's much misused. It's actually not Galileo's quote himself. In a letter that he wrote to the Grand Duchess Christina, he was actually quoting a cardinal, Cardinal Cesar Baronius. And when he said, and I think this is the translation of the quote, the intent of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how to go to heaven, not how heaven goes. So in quoting that cardinal, Galileo was expressing this same sentiment, that what we learn in science is the hand of God, the way that God made things happen, not the mind of God, how we get to heaven. So in scripture, we don't find, I don't believe, the evidence that we might be searching for to prove that the human genome is actually DNA. We won't find that in scripture. Interestingly though, we do find biology in scripture. Jesus spoke a lot of biology in Scripture. He spoke about sowing seeds. He spoke about the harvest. He spoke about plants and animals, very much a part of what our biological world is about. And I think it's very enriching to go through Scripture as a biologist and try to focus on some of the biological things that are talked about. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is the 15th chapter of John, where Jesus speaks about the vine and the vine grower and us as the branches. If you recall the passage, Jesus characterizes his father as the vine grower and himself as the vine and us as the branches of the vine. 
And he says that those branches which don't produce fruit will be pruned off to allow those that can produce to produce even more. And that our job is to produce fruit. Now, in thinking about that passage as a biologist might, I have to ask the question, what is the purpose of fruit? Well, the purpose of fruit for the vine grower is very different from the purpose of fruit for the vine and the branch. The vine grower sees the fruit as the product of his labors, as the product of his vineyard, as something that is going to be making his livelihood. But the vine itself, the plant, sees the fruit as the carrier of the seed. The seed is the next generation. The seed in the fruit is the next generation of that plant. Because in the seed, of course, the seed is the embryonic young plant. So when we are challenged to bear more fruit, it sounds to me as though we're being challenged in a biological fashion to bear more seed. To bear more, we'll say, the seed of the word for the next generation. It is our duty to carry that on. That's the challenge I hear in that. Not to bear more fruit in terms of being more productive, but to simply be aware of the fact that we are the repositories of the seed for the next generation. I like to reflect on that scripture in that way, in that biological sense, thinking, in fact, that Christ probably meant it that way. That he wasn't really telling us that we have to make more fruit to be more productive in a sense, but just be aware of our relationship to the vine and to the next generation. I think that biology is at a crossroads right now. At a crossroads in a sense because much of biology appears to be up against a stone wall. We've achieved a lot with our modern approach. The paradigm of the gene, of DNA, of its usefulness as a way of thinking about life is beyond criticism. It has given us wonderful discoveries of how cells work and how living systems work to do what they do and function. But at the same time, it's put us in a place where given the tools we have, tools that have led to the Human Genome Project and the biotechnology industry, we're at really a loss to decide what is the next step to take. We have experimenters who are ready to sequence the next gene they find. That's all well and good. But what is the next step to take? How is it that we decide what will be the next paradigm? What will be the next shift in biology that comes? Particularly those who are working in the field of neurobiology, where the effort is to decide what is this thing we call consciousness? How does the mind operate? Are really right there at the edge of what we can do with our current technology and more importantly our current philosophical stand. Because if we treat it as a totally reductionist stance, if we say that all we can know about is the structure of the gene, the way the information is contained in the cell, and that's all there is, then we will never really get past the material aspect of that. If we talk about emergent properties, we're getting a little bit beyond that because we're now arguing that there is a system in place that there is something, in fact, that yields more information than simply what we're looking at. So this is a start. But to really get at what makes the mind, what makes the soul a part of what we are, it seems to me that biology is going to have to let go of some of the philosophical restrictions that have been placed on it by a philosophical system which has been way beyond its time of usage. In other words, the 19th century philosophers no longer obtain, at least in physics, seems to me biology has to catch up with that, has to let go of that stance and be willing to accept the fact that systems might have more to them than simply the material things that make them up. That the spiritual might also be a part of this realm of the living world we see, especially of our own world, 
and our own being. If biology can achieve that, if we can move as a science smoothly into a philosophical framework that allows reflection on more than just the physical, then I suspect that biology will be able to move on to the next paradigm. Chris Langton, who is a scientist at the Santa Fe Institute, has spoken about this at a recent meeting we had here in Tucson. And he argues that in order to see the next level of biology, it may take someone different than a biologist. He argues that it may in fact take a poet to see the next level. Very interesting statement. I think that what he's trying to argue is that biology is so wrapped up in its own paradigms that we really need someone from outside. It may be the poet, it may be the theologian, it may be the philosopher who needs to come into this system and spring it free from its bounds. In the strictly reductionist approach, we have the wonders of the modern biological world. In the future of that world, I think we need, desperately, a new philosophical stance that allows the biologist freedom to think about the spiritual, to think about the properties of living systems as beyond simply the molecules. We'll come back to what I said at the beginning that life is. Biology is the study of life. We define life as growth, as metabolism, as adaptation, as a system of inheritance. All those things about life we study now at the molecular level. It's time now, I think, to study them all together as a system of thought, as a philosophy that encompasses all of what we see around us. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.